0: Hello again, friends. Welcome or welcome back to the Overview Effect with James Perrin, the podcast about stepping out of our day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month routines and perspectives and just stepping back and seeing the bigger picture of the world and our lives and asking those big, important questions about the world. I am your host, James Perrin. I want to acknowledge that today's conversation was recorded on a Rockwell country in Bunjilung Nation, and I want to pay respects to members and elders of the Bunjilung community and First Nations people around Australia. Now, speaking of those big questions, have you ever had a dream that you've wanted to pursue but haven't known how to get there? How about this one? What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? My guest today is a living example of an everyday man who redirected his life toward the extraordinary. He's an underwater and adventure photographer who's most well known for his work with Under the Pole, which is a series of underwater expeditions gathering scientific information whilst also inspiring and educating us about life under our seas. His work has found him diving in the Arctic north of Greenland, documenting stunning tropical reefs, and even being one of very few people who has lived and slept at the bottom of the ocean for days at a time. As if all of that wasn't enough of a premise for an incredible conversation, his story of how he became who he is is even more impactful. You see, he wasn't born into an exploration family, He wasn't an overly adventurous guy. He wasn't even a photographer until a few years ago. But one day, after spending 15 years in the corporate world, he took up photography as a hobby and just persisted with it. He started displaying his work in a local gallery, often facing criticism, but continued to put himself out there day after day. Then he was asked by a friend another one of these questions. What would be your ultimate assignment as a photographer? He recalled his childhood in France and being inspired by Jacques Cousteau, which led to an introduction with some French marine explorers who originally didn't need a photographer. But he kept knocking on the door and putting himself out there until they finally said, yes, you can join us. But then they laughed and dismissed him after hearing his inexperience in diving. So, unrelentingly, he packed in his corporate job, did nothing but diving for six months straight and was off to the North Pole. This is a story about someone who has been willing to be constantly outside of his comfort zone and be a beginner time and time and time again. This is a conversation about following your dreams. That might be leaving your day job to travel the globe adventuring, Or it might just be caring for your community around the corner and doing something meaningful. Whatever your dreams are, this conversation has so many lessons to help you get there. We went deep with this one. It's uncut. It's long form. Put the kettle on. You're going to love it. Please enjoy this conversation with underwater and adventure photographer Frank Gazzola. Frank, welcome to the show Thank you, thanks for having me (laughs) No worries mate, thank you for inviting me into your your place here in Byron um, On a a wet and windy day But uh, it's nice to sit down and connect And I'm I'm really keen to hear more about you and your story Obviously we met after your talk at TEDx Byron Bay Mm -hmm. And um, it was amazing and I loved hearing your story, but I guess there's only so much you can pack into 12 or 18 minutes or whatever you're given. So, you know, it's great to be able to sit and have a more intimate, longer-form discussion around this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. 18 minutes is a challenge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: How, how did you find it like that? Obviously, there's a lot of build-up and a lot of practice into fitting your talk into a quite a curated session how how did you find going through that with your, your TEDx talk and delivering it?
1: I think it's interesting because the way the way we worked during that TED talk, which seems to be quite unique, is that we worked as a team with the other speakers. <clears throat> so you tell your story a couple of times during rehearsal and um, and people get give you feedback and they think, ah oh, this is too long. This is a really you know, there should be a, a stronger focus and stuff. So that really helped me kind of um, script the talk in a way that that um, I think was was relevant to people. Um, I did. I wanted the talk to remain true to myself because there was a, the story. I think was essential. Um, so it needed to have all the elements, but then maybe not at the same um, in the same. I need to find that right balance that's what i, I and, and that was quite helpful to to work with the group and then after that it's just like making really owning your your script because you you really don't have much um much latitude in terms mm-hmm. of time so no, that was a that was a lot of work but it also makes you um i think it's well <clears throat> talking about the overview effect it's kind of giving you that you have to step back pretty much on your life and you're like okay i'm gonna make my <laughs> 41 year into an 18 minutes talk without being death by PowerPoint and and you know uh, it needs to be compelling and it needs to to hit you know um the the message needs to to go acro- need to go across in the right manner uh, in 18 minutes and uh, so that is a very challenging uh, exercise but also v- i think quite quite um um,
0: it feels like quite of an achievement When you've done it um, mm. I guess yeah. you've got to kind of um, be, be delivering your talk As well as Playing the role of observer as well like Pretending you're someone in the audience And observing you delivering your story about your life <laughs> and what yes. are the what are the key moments so it, yeah it would be a really interesting process to go through <laughs> no it was
1: interesting and definitely definitely quite uh, rewarding yeah
0: yeah cool well um I, I mean on the on the overview effect so obviously that's kind of the the premise or at least the starting point for this show i like to lead in with um, the same question with all my guests which is you know i'm are really inspired by these moments in our lives um, that really dramatically shape our view of the world. You know, it could be something quite dramatic, like an astronaut going to space and having a really paradigm shift, um, or it could be a period of someone's time or, um, you know, years of someone's life that really shape who they are and how they see the world. And so I, I like to ask the kind of leading question and say, have you had a moment in your life, either an experience or period of time that has really shaped who you are and how you see and interact with our world kind of like those astronauts viewing earth from space
1: i've had a few of those moments some of the some are very i think common to everyone so you get on the plane and you're on your own your family is not with you for instance and you go on the other side of the world for work or and you see the world, and you have a couple of wines, you watch a movie, and then you look through the window, and then you go like, "Oh my god, yeah, okay, this is my life. This is this. This is that." And you get very emotional, mm-hmm. um, and because you, you have that overview effect, you are on your own. You're in the sky. You know, it, there, there is this thing. I think that tri- that for me, it that it triggers being yeah. in a plane like that. Um, so I have had, had I've had that. A couple of times, like very intense ones, uh, especially lately. Um, especially when I'm leaving on an expedition, and I, like, for instance, leave my wife behind. And you know, it's for months, and and you you've got a lot of questions coming to your head, and so you're kind of looking at your you're kind of zooming out on your life, on the world, on you know, you're questioning yourself a lot. You know, is it relevant? Should you do that, not? You know, are you happy, not happy? All of a sudden you're overwhelmed with questions like that in in your head. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of what I feel. Um, what I've felt in the last few years taking taking long flights. And I've had another one of those more recently, um, at the at the end of one of the um, during one of the projects I've worked on recently with uh, the expedition under the pole, and we'll explain probably later what mm. it is, but we've lived underwater for for three days, four, four days, three nights, <laughs> uh, with a couple of um, couple of other guys, and in a, like an underwater habitat, and everything. Was different, like everything you see, everything blue. Your voice different. Your senses are different, um and also you, you know, you don't have your phone, you don't have internet, you've got nothing. You're truly somewhere else, on another planet, wow. under the ocean. And then coming back after it was only four days, but c- coming back, you have an overload, a, a sensory overload. You know, it was in in the in French Polynesia, so everything the mountains are green. It was sun sunset, mm. so it's all like. You know, like orangey in the sky, you know, you've got the green mountains, you've got the blue, you've got people shouting at you, you hear your voice again. Everything was muffled, you know, for three days. Or the only thing we could hear was our voices, our own voices, you know, sp- speaking like that, like an <laughs> old duck, because we were breathing a mix of helium and oxygen. Wow. Anyway, you come back after like these four days of com- being, feeling on a completely different planet and coming back, and you feel your re-entering. The world and you have had this kind of very unique experience and 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 you start to appreciate those things that you never thought it'd be it feel weird to see some green, but then yes, you now you see green and you 're like oh green oh that 's nice um, so i've i have a, have had that during that uh, during that experience which was uh, which was pretty really nice
0: yeah, oh my gosh, I can only imagine I can only imagine what that 's like and and going back to your first um, the first thing you said about about being on a plane and leaving for a big trip, you know, I haven't had anywhere near the the expeditions that you have, but I, I can understand what you're talking about there. Because even if you're planning a big trip or a big um, yeah, something personal, and you you are up in the plane, and it's you've probably been thinking about all the minor details what you need to pack where you're going your itinerary it's a big you know how long i'm going to be away for it's a big thing in your life and then you get up on that plane and you kind of look out the window and you see the shape of the, the earth really you see all these other houses and mountains and countries and land and then you feel somewhat insignificant where you know where you've probably spent the whole Or well, yeah. this is what i've had probably spent the last few days and weeks. So wrapped up in your personal life around yep. this trip and or, uh, this expedition or this travel, what you're doing, and then you get on the plane and you leave, and there's no one to talk to really. There's not much to do. You're sitting there and you see all these other people, and uh, yeah, if you feel like I'm just one tiny little person on the face of this earth.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that <laughs> this is this this brings back, from my point of view, a lot of humility, which is why I was saying before: is you ask yourself a lot of questions. Why do this? And blah, blah, blah. is that really worth? Or is it really my? Uh, is this the way my life should be? Because all of a sudden you can question everything. You know, you're back to almost square one. You're like, oh, when you look at you know all these little ants on the ground, you're like, okay, I'm just one of those. Mm. <laughs> you know, so whatever what I think is really important here, or you know, could be, uh, I could be doing something else. Or this is the really the, what is really the meaning behind what I do and stuff like that. So I agree with you. It's kind of bringing you that sense of, of humility again and and, mm. and you realize
0: you're not that big and that much uh, to <laughs> yeah. the world and you realize that maybe the things in your life that have been just frustrating you like i don't know dirty dishes or whatever it is it's not really that big in the scheme of no, things exactly is it? yeah um so you talked about living underwater and i want to hear more about that that sounds amazing but maybe just for the listener who's perhaps unfamiliar with you and your work can you Tell us a bit about, um, you know, what, what you do or what you have been doing as an adventure photographer and the types of expeditions you've been on and, and what Under the Pole is and the work that you've been doing with Under the Pole. <clears throat>
1: yeah, so um, I am an adventure and documentary photographer um, with a with a lot of un- which implies a lot of underwater work for 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 what I do, but not just I do anything from underwater to topside. Uh, I mean on land or um, aerial photography with drones Um, and but this is relatively new to me because I was coming I did I've only been a photographer for six years full-time before I was in a corporate world and I changed um, I changed career gradually and then one day I had to kind of make that step to really become a photographer full time. And that was because I got the an opportunity to go and work with an expedition called Under the Pole. Under the Pole were formed in two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, um by a couple, Emmanuel and Guylain Bardou. They're French. Um and they're divers. Um, she's coming from, the sa- uh, from a sailing background, like high-level sailing background, and he's an engineer with a uh, technical diving background. And they both organized this expedition in 2010 called uh, Deep Sea Rolex Deep Sea Under the Pole, which was basically going to the geographical North Pole, pulling sleds, uh, their gear on sleds, and you know by foot and skis. Um, and to dive under the geographical North Pole, right? so that was the, <laughs> the, 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 that was the, 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 the start of this adventure. And that was in 2010. Um, and then in 2014-15, they were doing this second expedition uh, with a lot of polar diving again uh, in, alongside the west coast of Greenland so in the Arctic. Um, and this is the expedition I, I had an opportunity to go and, and work with for a couple of months or yeah, two or three months, um, which forced me to resign from my uh, <laughs> old uh, old life. and um, and since then, I've been involved with with them and there's been another expedition uh, after that um, that one in Greenland, which is um, which is just finished now, uh, which was a four year trip. A journey around the world uh, on board again an expedition ship this time and doing some underwater exploration um, for science. That's what uh, uh, Under the police is is a, is a series of expeditions, um, putting innovative techniques of diving to the service of scientific research and education. So that means it's not just about finding stuff and 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 and, and making the scientists happy. It's also how do you make sure that whatever is discovered can be shared to the to the biggest numbers, especially with, with kids. Mm. So that those are kind of the the, the overarching mission of of um, of um of under the pole is that research and then documentation. So documentaries, producing um movies and documentaries mm. and then also sharing with with um with
0: the younger ones. Amazing. Yeah. And and what's just sticking with under the pole for a minute, so what are the what are some of the outcomes of that research? Like what are some of the the things that you're actually studying or that you're trying to achieve or the environmental impacts or what are the what are actually the, it, the topics?
1: It varies from region to, from project to project or from region to region. Um, I'll take the example of the last expedition we've done which was under the pole three, which was uh, called the Twilight Zone. And the idea was to focus on the Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone is the zone that's comprised between 30 meters and 150 meters depth. Um, That zone is actually widely unknown because it's too deep for conventional divers. Conventional divers usually stop around 30, 40 meters. And if you have the means to use a submersible, for instance, then you go really, really, really deep. It costs millions of dollars, and it's very high. You know, it's very mm. expensive to you know on a daily basis. You go really deep, as deep as you can go, and as a result, there is this zone in the middle that is very connected to the one that we know and that has an influence or on which um, that is connected to us, the, sh- the, the the shallower waters. This next zone is actually widely unknown, and that was the focus of this expedition. And the the, the idea was to go around the world from the Arctic to the Antarctic, focusing on that. Uh, Twilight Zone. So, when we were in the Arctic, um, we were focusing on trying to find biofluorescence and bioluminescence. Um, so, that was one project, um, as well as doing a, an underwater um, Arctic biodiversity inventory. It, this part of the world is hardly. Um, uh, is hardly sailed, so let alone dive. You know, no one goes. Hardly anyone goes there and dive, and and um, that's what we were trying to do: is understanding what is what is underwater. It's it's funny because in some of environments now, the species are disappearing before they could ever be sometimes discovered or registered. Oh, wow. You know, so it happens in a lot of places, in a lot of habitats, you know, in the forest. And some people still discover some species that are already going, you know, already almost going extinct. And they haven't been yet discovered. So in the Arctic, it's still some, it's still very um, um, widely unknown what's down there and and how the, the interspecies... Um, interactions happen and stuff like that, so that was one focus so uh, biofluorescence bioluminescence and the, the the inventory of the the, the biodiversity and then we moved to French Polynesia and in French Polynesia we are studying the mesophotic corals so the mesophotic corals are, are the deep corals the, the corals living in the twilight zone. Um, there was same like a very little understanding of this environment just because it's not accessible mm. for most divers. Um, either technically because they can't get there technically, they don't have the skills or the, some of the scientists are limited technically or legally by their, um, by their uh, lab or their research center. You know, they can do diving, but they can do it down to 15 meters and they can do it on a day off because, you know, the, the, the research lab doesn't want to have the liability of something happening. So they take a day off, they go diving to 15 meters. So, they know very much, we know very much the surface with, with coral reefs, but we don't know what's happening below a certain depth. And that's what, that's uh, what was our focus. And the reason why we worked on that, for instance, is that there is this theory that was kind of floating around in the last few years, which was called the refuge theory. And the, the, the idea was that corals could be looking for shelter deeper where there is less, potentially less stress for them. Uh, where temperatures are uh, could be a little more stable mm. so it's a, in a way it's a bit more hostile um, because the water could be it's a bit darker and we know they need light etc but, but it seems to, that, that, that they, they had the ability to migrate um, further down and the idea was to, to get the data mm. to support or not the theory to understand a little bit more the continuum and the relationship between the deep corals of the twilight zone of that mesophotic area um, mesophotic means less light um, So trying to understand the relationship between the shallow corals and the deep corals yeah, well. And that's what we've done um, And this has very much changed the way the scientists now see the the reefs in French Polynesia But it, what we found I think would could be applicable to other regions as well um, but mm. that's that's kind of what we've done. And, and we've discovered a few a few very interesting things there. Um, so yeah, that's, wow. that, that, that was one area of focus. And then wow, after that, that, we've done through the capsule, we were looking at
0: interspecies relationships. And this is um, the one where you lived? When underwater. we live in underwater, yeah. Wow. And what so what was that like? Because you did talk about this in your TED Talk and you, you talked about how um, you mentioned how the the underwater life kind of quickly got used to you guys being there and started acting differently as if you were just a, a diver coming for a short amount of time.
1: Yeah, the idea that Guilin, the, the leader of this expedition, um, is an engineer and he's, he's this vision, visionary diver. He, he, he basically imagined this light habitat that could be deployed pretty much anywhere on the reef like you you don't need a big footprint it has no link to the surface to the to the land so it is something that you can pretty much deploy anywhere and which takes a lot of the different technologies that exist but it's kind of merged them into this really kind of light um, practical habitat um, in which we could live for a few days because today the challenge is not so much to go deeper we kind of know how to go deep now the problem is 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 staying long Mm. underwater there are physiological constraints that prevent us from going from staying at depth for too long or staying underwater for too long. We need to, we're not fish, you know, we need to eat, we need to drink. Um, we, we have decompression um, constraints. So, you know, you spend the longer and the deeper you spend time underwater, then longer your decompression is going to be. So, you have to be mindful of that when you plan your dive. So, it means you can, if you go down to 120, 150 meters, like, like they've done. On a daily basis, you cannot stay there for more than like twenty minutes, and then you're gonna make your way up, and then for like three hours, you, you'll oh, be wow. <laughs> you'll be going up. That that limits the time you have working at depth, and that the idea was that you 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 um, um, of this capsule was to be able to be part of the environment. The problem when you dive is that you you do an incursion. You you're noisy. You know, you jump off the boat, big splash. You come down. We're not really uh, noisy with our equipment, but, you know, the fish can see us. They hide away, and then, mm. and then you basically cross, and you, do, you, cross the, you, you go across the environment, wherever the reef, or you do your measurements, your photos, you, and then you start to go back up. It's, it's very intrusive in the, in the life of the fish and, and, and every living cr- creatures down there. This was, the idea of this capsule was to, to avoid being intruder, and 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 start become a um, another inhabitant of the reef. And after it's true that after a few a few uh, first we when we deployed the capsule there was no fish on it, and then very quickly the fish started to just like a wreck you know a wreck gets gets colonized very quickly by fish and crustaceans and. So that was the same with the with the capture we had to kind of um you know there were algae that would grow on it and then fish would come and it started to become uh, almost like an habitat <laughs> you know <laughs> as uh, uh, uh yeah it started to be like its own a little habitat on the reef but so yeah the idea was that that w- they would forget about us and and they did very very quickly actually yeah, so wow. after a while some fish there were there were a couple of um trumpet fishes like they would come every day They would be just behind the hole where we were i had I was taking photos and it would come between me and my camera. Wow. So it would be, you could basically pat the fish. And I'm like, I've never I've never touched a fish. Like they run away. And uh, it was really interesting that they, could, they, they had this, you had this really close personal relationship with some of them. You could actually start to see behavior. Usually when you go as a diver, you, you're lucky if you see a behavior because you, they kind of hide away from you. Or if there was a behavior about to happen, they kind of, oh, this is an intruder. And then whatever behavior is, there's a good chance it's not going to happen, Mm. right? Like whether it's hunting, mating, stuff like that. That was different there. We could actually see that from either diving because they were oblivious to our presence or when we were in the capsule, we had two big domes on either side and we could keep watching what was happening. Yeah. And and then you could see a lot of behavior. You see mating, you see predation behavior, stuff like that, just like if you were not there, which was very interesting.
0: Wow. Oh my gosh. So this capsule was built... And you, you, you live down there for four days, but you're able to come and go in and out of the capsule. Yes. Basically, oh my gosh, amazing!
1: <laughs> you basically, have a, a moon.
0: What's called a moon pool
1: at the yeah. at the bottom, and then you just slide out, and then put your equipment, which is hooked on a on a on a cable, and yeah. then you just you just you've got a reg, like a, a something you can breathe in, yeah, and that you can just grab when you when you when you slide out, so you can breathe on a on a normal tank, and then you. You put your equipment, mm. um, you're like kind of zero gravity, so you can you've got this thing that's hooked, and then you just put it like a backpack and you just get hooked up, and when you're ready to go, you just let the regulator that's attached to the capsule. you put your own um, a mouthpiece in your in your mouth and off off you go. and then we could basically have we could dive with no time limits and down to thirty five meters if I'm not mistaken mm. and um and then we just come back to the capsule and have a rest, have a feed, work, do some more observations and then go out again. So we'd, we'd, we'd spend, we'd do at least a couple of dives a, a day, mm. uh, long dives. And then we would have some divers helping us out with giving us the food supply we would need mm. on a daily basis. And and they would sometimes take our equipment to change the tanks and give us a fresh, a fresh um, scuba or mm. fresh rebreather uh, with new tanks and everything all, all checked. And they would hook it up onto the capsule, and we we could go and, and dive again. So it was a bit of a logistics, wow. but it was um, it worked, and, and 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 I've seen the reef like I've never seen it before. Oh,
0: I can own I can not even imagine what that would be like. That's an that's incredible, um, and I imagine. Uh, you know, for you to do something like that, such an extreme kind of expedition, you must be a long-time explorer, a career explorer, maybe born into an adventure family. You know, this is something that you must have been doing for your whole career, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a bit of a leading question. Yeah, no, it,
1: it, <laughs> it is um, very recent. Yeah. I was born near Paris and it was, I came from a f- f- pretty much like middle-class suburb near Paris very my parents were just hikers they were not like h- hikers and, and riding bikes like cyclists that's all they would they would do and we'd had like uh, and we never really traveled overseas um they were like pretty much like typical middle French middle class um get a good job you know try to try to Put me to to a school that would allow me to go to university, so that I could get a good job better than theirs. You know, like that kind of yeah, trying to try to avoid un, unemployment kind of uh, kind of um, environment. Um, and that's the, so that's the way I was brought up. Mm. I never never passion was factored into. It was good to have passion. You know, they they, they paid for, uh, for for music lessons and stuff like that. Like I had, I could do stuff but it was never um the passion was never something to be factored into your work uh, not in my family mm. and so it was in a way quite boring it was it was safe everything was safe bet you know safe everything was safe mm. about my the my upbringing and and, and stuff so no, it was <laughs> all of that is new to me. Um, I was never brought up this way. I never, I was never in an adventure. Uh, my my parents liked to hike, so we were in the mountains all the time, and I loved the ocean. But I couldn't. We hardly ever went to the ocean for holidays. So it was only when I started to become a bit more independent that I could go on the to the to the ocean side with my mates and you know when you're like teenager teenage years you can start to have your own holidays on your and that's that's when I had a, a real contact with the ocean and I really loved it Um but I didn't come from my family and then you know I started uh, like I said I was in a corporate I studied I did, I did exactly what what society and my parents kind of wanted me to 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 do and become so I, I studied business and and I was not bad at it and I kind of liked it and, and, I, and I didn't think there was anything else anyways, like I didn't really see my life otherwise like, and, and I didn't really have any talent I was not a singer, I was not a, a, a talented photographer or anything like that so it was just logical that I would just you know, if you don't have talents and you can, you're not too bad at school, then you just study, get a good job, get mm. a good pay, and then you'll go and do a, ha- go and have nice holidays, and and you know and that was the way I was, uh, I, I I that's the way I did it for like 15 years, yeah, um, and I only started to dive in to properly in 2015, 14, 15, before just when I got this um opportunity to go and work with under the pole whilst they were in greenland in 2014-15
0: yeah wow so that's only when you started diving so i did
1: i did diving like i had an open water just like you know when you go to thailand and yeah actually before moving to australia i stopped in thailand for a week because i knew australia was amazing i had amazing dive spots but then it's also quite expensive so we stopped stopped over in thailand mm did an open water course because then we knew we wouldn't have to do the course in Australia and uh, yeah but so that, that's all I could do really is dive with a couple of turtles and yeah. and at, down to 15 meters and uh, that, that was it that was the the extent of my skills in 2015 but then or 14 but then I had this opportunity to go diving or to, to go and join this expedition and when I talked to the leader of this expedition um, he said to me uh, we had a we had a chat and he said yeah okay we'll, look we need another photographer for a few months during our wintering uh, season um and and and, um, and i said oh great great look i'm i'm i'm, I'm all for that and, and so he said yeah okay you got the gig and all all good and i was like okay but i want to make sure i can i can dive and 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 shoot under the ice and he laughed at me he said um what's your dive level oh no he didn't laugh at me first he said what's your diving level and i said open water and then that's when he laughed and he said <laughs> yeah. he said he said no mate you're not diving with us and that's that's basically when that's that was a turning point i said to him look I've got six months before I join you. Until I actually join you on the, on the on the expedition, I'll do everything I can uh, to be ready. And I had no guarantee that that it would work. So I, he, because I said to him, look, you decide whether you think I'm fit to dive or not. Mm. Um, and he said, okay, fair enough. For him, it was risk-free. And then I run to the dive shop in Bondi, and I said, um, I said, mate, I've just scored the the, the most amazing gig in Greenland. <laughs> I've got six months. Can you train me how to dive safely under the ice to be ready to be able to to dive safely under the ice? And the guy said, "Um, yeah, sure. And (laughs) then he gave me a roadmap and he said, okay, you'll start with this and that and that and that. And for six months, that's all I did. Diving, 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 diving. And I was still when I got there. I was still a baby diver, relatively to all those guys. But I was I was enough to 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 I w- th- to get me going and to be to be dive to be working underwater safely. Mm. Um, but since I've been working with under the pole, I, I kept training because I I started to really like it and also because then they hired me for the next expedition and then I had to train more and train more and train more. So I just I started to train for deeper dives and then I started to train to to uh, work with different kind of equipment we don't use open open circuit we can use closed circuit so it's a different kind of equipment altogether so all of that uh, has been done over the course of the last five years really but yeah I didn't come from an adventurer family I didn't come from an ocean savvy kind of uh, environment and 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 I only started to die five years ago but I've kind of started in a way with the the best the, the, some of the best people in the world and 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 so bit by bit i got there now i also there's a scale in the expedition and the people i work with there's a scale from 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 0 to 10 still you know within our scale of things there's mm. i'm probably i'm quite i'm still quite low in the in the in their scale
0: yeah <laughs> uh, compared yeah. to
1: the other guys but it's 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 enough to work safely in all this remote location because that's that's a tricky part I mean that one of the tricky parts is being able to work in these uncharted waters in the remote corners of the globe and doing it safely i can do that mm. um, uh, i have enough now to skills
0: to to be able to do that but yeah. i'm not at their level yet yeah yeah but what's what's amazing in in your story and that story is that you were still so you, when you were in Bondi. You were still working in your your corporate job, right? Your business job, yeah. and you were doing photography kind of on the side. Yeah, and you got this call or this opportunity um, to go and do this huge expedition, and you just took it. And you just ran with it. Is that?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll explain because it's. Uh, I think. Uh, I think it's important um, to. Ex- I, I think it's important to explain because things don't just. F- fall off from the sky or you know Mm. i didn't i wasn't really anyone special that some guys in the north pole would want me to come and work for them and i want that to be understood this way because that's the reality is completely is completely different it's actually quite the opposite um i reached out to them um i had started photography when i um arrived in australia because i I love the ocean i love surfing i i love landscapes and and finally there was uh, when i moved to to australia we we settled in Bondi and um and I had everything that I really loved you know the ocean the rocks the the landscape crazy sunrises the surf so that's when I started to to use a camera properly I'd never really done that I was when I was 17 I did a bit of photos when I was a, a kid in high school we had a dark room I did that for maybe 6 months but it wasn't it was a, it was analog photography at the time. It mm-hmm. was a very expensive hobby when you had to process your films and everything. So I never really I did that for six months, but that, that was it. I never really touched a camera after that. And for my thirty years, my uh, wife and my parents got me a really nice camera, like a, a proper camera, mm. a proper DSLR camera. And migrating just before we moved to Australia, and um, and then I had like good st- stuff that I really like to shoot. So that I started to shoot a little bit more. And the story goes that uh, we we. For my Bucks party, um, we met in the Maldives with um, my best mate from Europe and my best mate from Australia. It was halfway was the Maldives, and that's where we met. And on part of the package, being on that boat for to go surfing on that charter boat, we had a, a professional surf photographer with us. This guy was called Brad Malian, and he had started a gallery in, in Bronte called Frothers, the Frothers Gallery. And it was a collective of photographers showcasing you know, ocean imagery. So different photographers bringing their best images. And that was the, the gallery. And uh, anyway, we, we got on really well. And he saw a few of the photos I had done then, which were probably my top best, my top 10 Uh, best photos which we're like okay (laughs) but then he said to me um, and he said to me oh do you want to become a contributor to the gallery and I said oh yeah great what what do I have to do and then my my job was to go and shoot the beach every day we were they were doing like a morning report so you know like shooting the surf the people the landscape the sunrise stuff like that couple mm-hmm. of portraits of the locals and then send the best images into, through a newsletter and the socials and writing a little blurb about what, you know, what they've seen and stuff. Um, and they were doing that every day from Monday to Friday. And he said, like, look, you, you just have to go and do the report like a few days a week. Um, you know, We'll have a roster. And then. So I started to do that before going to work. I would basically wake up before sunrise, go and shoot, take my best images, edit them, put them on to the send them out to the newsletter write a little blurb to go with them and um and then i would go to work and and my images were pretty 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 bad at the start <laughs> but the thing is that it forced me to i was doing that a few days a week so i was i was forced to shoot mm. uh, as an amateur photographer i was forced to shoot a lot a lot a lot more than an amateur photographer say who would only do stuff on the weekends with the family and, and stuff you know what i mean it it forced yeah. me and also whether it was raining or it was an amazing sunrise you'd had to come up with nice shots so you have to become creative and you're shooting the same kind of three four beaches so you you've got the same subject and you've got to become you've got to come with something new every time so you've got to be creative with what you shoot, how you shoot it you know the iceberg's pool has been shot oh yeah you know thousands yeah. of times how do you make the iceberg shot different today than it was yesterday and that was, the um, that was for me, a, a really great training. Anyway, long story short, I started to be involved with this gallery. And f- after a couple of years, I started to get traction. And I started to sell images and stuff. And my, my mate, Brad, decided to sell the gallery, or decided to close the gallery, actually. He was not selling it. He was closing down the gallery because he was moving up to Newcastle. And I was... I was really bummed when he said that to me because I was like, oh no, I finally I had like this passion of starting to make a bit of money. I don't know, I really like that kind of motivation. If I if I would lose that, I felt I would lose all willingness to actually go out and shoot. Mm. Um, so I said, okay, look, I'll buy the gallery of you. And so I was doing that on top of my work and um, and once I bought the gallery, I wanted to rebrand it because I thought it was quite quite... Uh, maybe a little bit outdated and a bit blokey and stuff, and I thought, oh, I could I could use some of the great stuff they had done, and but tweak it to my to my liking. Mm. And I uh, was referred to a, a web designer. Anyway, that web designer was French, and one of the first thing, and I explain why it's important, is because um, one of the first thing he said uh, to me was, um, "Hi, hey, what do you, um, what would be your ultimate assignment as a photographer?" And I said, oh when I was a kid, I was fascinated by stuff like Jacques Cousteau and this kind of adventure. So, documenting something like this for me would be would be amazing. Mm. And he said, "Oh well, I know this couple from back in France. Um, they're underwater explorers, and they're currently in the north of Greenland on board an expedition ship. They're doing underwater <laughs> exploration for science uh, under the ice and and um, underwater, obviously, but also under the ice." And he said, uh, "They're called Under the Pole." And if you want, I can I can put you in touch with them. Yeah, wow. And so I sent one email, two email, three, four. I never got a reply. And then out of the blue, I got one that a reply saying, "Hey, we might need someone else during a few months," and that's how I ca- that came about. So I was I had a call with then the leader of the expedition. That's how I got the gig. But initially, it was because I was referred, because it came out completely by coincidence in a conversation that guy had the same reference as me because we grew up the same generation we grew up on Jacques Cousteau it was there every Sunday on TV it's just the David Attenborough of of France really so that was on (laughs) everyone knows like can refer to that and so that conversation with this French guy in Sydney say, to whom I mentioned, Jacques Cousteau, he said, oh, yeah, and I know those guys who same were, were fed on, you know, they were fed on Jacques Cousteau. They're the same age as me and they were, they were the, the, the same. We've got the same influences. And that's how it came about. Yep. And so I, I basically said, okay, why not? Why not writing them an email? And I explained that I could take photos, but also that I could help them with other stuff if they needed because I had a corporate background and I could develop the international side of their expedition because everything was very franco-french yeah even on the social media everything was in french and like oh maybe we could make it more uh international you know stuff like that so i kind of offered all those things uh to them to try Mm -hmm. to make them attract because i was not the best photographer i had to find other ways to (laughs) attract them
0: there's you know there's a few things i hear in that in that is like one is that um i know that you said opportunities don't just fall out of the sky, you know, and that it, it built over time. Like you started with the photos at the beach and then with the – well, first with the photos really on your Bucks trip. Yeah. <laughs> it all started with a Bucks trip. Uh, <laughs> but then, then supplying photos to the gallery and then having this kind of fortuitous, seemingly random connection. Um, but there's also like you put in the work, you know. Like a lot of people maybe uh, – would want to be an amateur photographer but oh, it's a bit too much work to every week or multiple times a week supply photos to this gallery I'll just do it all, you know maybe I, I won't commit to that or even in you said your emails you didn't just send one email you sent two three four like followed up I think there's a there's a a, a lesson there in like the commitment and just continuing to show up and put in to what you were doing there yeah. were there certainly lucky coincidences along the way, but I think it sounds like you also made a lot of that come to yes, life too.
1: yeah, I agree. And luck luck is just, I think luck is what I think can make things tip over or or, or the, the final trigger or the, but yeah, indeed you have to kind of commit. And the thing for me is that in terms of the photography, the motivation and the work was put in there because I really, I, shooting for that gallery initially I, realize, I I had actually a lot of feedback. The gallery was receiving initially a lot of feedback on how bad my photos were. <laughs> those guys were <laughs> those guys were really good. Like they they'd been yeah. established. They were established photographers. They were really good. And then for whatever reason, Brad trusted me on the basis of you know seeing like maybe ten of my best shots. But the reality, once you have, and there were shots that I, you know, everything was fine on the photo. But when mm. you have to shoot on a crappy day in Bondi, you know, in winter, mm. and you have to make ten good photos or seven good photos, it's another story. And that my photos were pretty, pretty average at best. And the 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 feedback that was received by the gallery was actually like, uh, you know, what what is this guy? Where is he coming from? You know, and his photos are pretty average. And I could have it kind of fueled my desire to do better mm. so that's the first thing i think it it you know some people just get completely overwhelmed by this kind of thing or not overwhelmed but you know they go like oh this is not for me mm. uh, i'm the opposite you know if you like poke me like that i'm like okay i'll show you mate <laughs> i'll show you that i can do better and that that kind of um, it, it it hurt me but at the same time it it fueled my desire to do better and then looking back, like it wasn't far, and then there was the start of social media. I started to use Instagram, for instance, okay? Instagram was like this you, this need for validation, you know? Yes. So I would post the first photos and I'd have like 20 followers and I'd have five likes. And then and then, that's why I took my, I do a sidestep here, but that's why I kind of kept my distance now with social media for a while, because then it was, it was this addiction, addictive behavior, you know? Like this kind of instant reward and stuff. The minute I realized that my, I knew what my work was worth, I, I was able to give um, my work some, some worth, like, objectively. Then I stopped using social media. I didn't need that, that reward anymore. But initially, having the feedback from, the, from the, the audience receiving the newsletter or the social media kind of pushed me. You know, you get, you get five more likes than the last photo. And, f- mm. and that kind of motivated me to do, to do better. And then looking back at the first photo I'd done six months prior, I was like, oh, yeah, I've made a lot of progress. What if I keep pushing this way for the next six months? hopefully my work is going to increase another two or three-fold. And that's kind of, because I was doing it every day, I had this kind of constant, I felt the evolution was, was constantly going in the right direction. Mm. And that kind of kept me going for, for, um, for a while. So that forced me to, to work. And it's true that if I had done just photos on the weekends, I would have never had that kind of steep learning curve where you actually are conscious of how steep your learning curve is. And when you have that, it's highly rewarding. You, you know where you're coming from and you're like, oh, this is really nice. You, you start to get a lot more satisfied with your work. And I think there was an addictive, oh, it's, Addictive and motivation coming out on the back of that, you know the more you shoot, the more you want to shoot because you you can see you can do better and and, mm-hmm. and only come through practice you can see the progress yeah, you can see yeah. the progress and it becomes so obvious that and you know it 's not a month you know over a few weeks i can I could note some improvements yeah so that 's why it kind of kept me working, and everything i 've done after that was like, oh yeah, that can help me learn how to do underwater stuff, and then that could lead me to you know so i 'm constantly outside of my comfort zone that's what I feel all the Mm. time it's tiring after a while but you gotta but that's the only thing that kind of seems to be keeping me that, that keeps me interested um Mm. is feeling that kind of growth and that's probably also why i started to disengage for after a while after 15 years in the corporate world because i didn't have that initially it was stimulating but then after that you know you're just in this political kind of environment where everyone's just waiting for the next bonus and Mm. and the you know that that's not on the long pay the long service leave or these things and you're like okay this is this shouldn't be the case like initially i liked because i was surrounded by smart people who with whom i felt i was growing and then all that that kind of curve started to to flatten out and yes. and and the the photo was the one curve that was going like boom towards the sky and i was like oh yeah cool something that's really motivating yeah so yes there is a work back to your question for me the the the, the luck is helpful but you cannot just manifest and wait for luck to happen um you from my point of view it has to, you have to work and because i didn't really have any special talent or any gift? I kind of fell into that a little bit by coincidence. I had to work twice as much. If I had been a better photographer or someone super talented, I probably would have been a lot l- more lazy. Mm. Um, yes. and and I didn't have the luxury of that laziness, and I still <laughs> don't because you know I'm I'm still competing or competing. I'm still in an industry where I came really late in. You know, mm. I'm, I came l- late in my career. I came late in my with my age. And you've got kids that have grown up with a DSLR in their hands, you know, since they were like 11. They could shoot, 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 which I couldn't do when I was a kid because it was analog. Those guys can shoot thousands of photos in their first years of their, you know, teenage yeah. years. They are so much better than, than I will probably ever be. But then I've, I had other things to bring to the table. So it I, I keep, kept me working, working, working. And so that's, for me, the secret is that it's not just don't count on talent and luck. It's just work, yeah. work and dare. There to grab your phone send an email um yes that's, that's the one i think for me that's the one one of the secrets is and and you might be out of your depth but that's fine
0: you're right it's amazing when you when you, you send an email or pick up the phone or make contact with someone um that you think this person is amazing like we put them on a pedestal there you know this person is some amazing adventurer or you know leader or whatever it is um and sometimes you just reach out and they come back to you. I get that with the podcast sometimes. Some people I just randomly reach out to and say, hey, would you like to sit down and record a conversation? They go, yeah. And I'm kind of like, really? <laughs> with me? Oh, okay, wow. Um, but you're right. Like You just got to take that first step. And I think what I'm hearing in your story as well is that you got you're comfortable or at least you're accepting of being uncomfortable. You know, a lot of people, I think there's that real fear of failure or fear of not being good at something, putting it, putting poor quality photos out there or being an inexperienced diver or whatever it is. Maybe that might hold a lot of people back because they don't want to be seen as not being good at something. Yeah. Whereas it sounds like (laughs) you're, you're familiar with that. You know, you've, you've been a beginner time and time again by the sounds of it.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's where that but this is also what i i am um, I don't want to be ashamed of that because i I actually think that it's also my my strength and what people um may actually like working with me or some of my clients isn't because because i'm i' I've, I've never been in this position where I feel i'm i'm that comfortable that I can become arrogant or um or uh, complacent. You know, so I'll work twice as hard and sometimes to my detriment, to my detriment, because I'm, I just think, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to, to, to pull it off on that, you know, that assignment. So I work so much harder and sometimes it's a little bit of an overkill, Mm. but it just keeps me, it keeps me um, in check, keeps me humble to have had that, that kind of, of lead into this new profession or new career of mine. Um and I think this is what something I think this is something that people that I work with appreciate as well. Because it's not like I don't take it for granted. Uh I don't I don't think I I am complacent. Um, mm. um so yeah. And I think it also means that people are higher when, when I work with people or collaborate or I'm being hired by 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 clients and they know that and they know the story. They know they're not necessarily working with the absolute best photographer. But I compensate with other things. I, you know, it's just... It's these things of just being on time, sending an email, and being, <laughs> being being polite. You know, when you yes. say you deliver something, you deliver it on time. In the creative world, very often people say, oh, I'm a creative guy, so I can I cannot yeah. answer your email for <laughs> another week. You know, and this, th- these things are just... Um, um uh, for me they're they're natural from and that's probably from my past career. Mm. Um so I yeah, I'm not ashamed of that of the fact that I'm I'm kind of um still learning and and not as not as experienced as some other guys or not as talented. Mm. Just because I, I, I hand I, I I like to compensate with other things and um and also I think it is for the people that I get to meet, sometimes it can be also inspiring that whatever they want to do, they can do. I mean, there's a lot of things that people, if you if you want, you can, or stuff like that. It's mm. not as simple, but it's, um, you don't have to be the best, you know? Uh, people, people have that kind of complexity of, oh, I cannot do this or that because I'm not the best in, yeah, I wasn't the best in my industry either, but I try, uh, I had the honesty of admitting that I wasn't, but then I was doing other things instead. I was working hard and I was just being, trying to be a nice person to work with instead of being the absolute best. The absolute best sometimes are not meant to work with because they've got, <laughs> you know, they're like, they, they've got so much arrogance uh, yes. going with them that some people are tired working with the best in general. Yeah. Uh, usually people who are the best in the, industries, in the industry know that they are the best yeah. <laughs> and and it's hard that you find that these kind of people are still humble and and you know and yeah. approachable and stuff, so I think the strength this is a strength not being the best uh, if you know how to 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 turn it to your advantage, and mm. this is where I, this is why I'm not ashamed and I want to shout this uh, loud to to other people mm. say whatever you do or want to do don't think you're the best just there there to try there to make a phone call you know start and yes you will have to work probably harder than someone who's more talented or more experienced or, or more trained than you but it starts with a phone call it starts with an email and and and, and yes it's not going to be comfortable but but try it and that's the only way you'll get to 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 get somewhere and at least you won't regret it. I think for me the the biggest thing as well in that is just the, the other message behind you don't have to be the best is use regret as a compass. When you don't know, when, when you have to, a hard choice to make, what will I regret the most, having tried or not? You know, mm. it, it, and regret is when when you're like at a crossroad. Is w- what is it that I will regret the most? Use that as your compass. And if you decide to go ahead and and go for that change or that dream of yours, you know it's not going to be you know, a straight road. It's going to be bumpy, but but use that as a compass and then work hard and and be don't be afraid to say to people that you're new in the industry. But that you, you know, um, but just be nice. Just be a kind person, and I think people like that sometimes over your talent um that's 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 something I'm, I'm i'm really keen to um to put that there uh, yeah. because that's that's worked
0: out for me i think i think that's a that's a wonderful message you know like just be willing to put yourself out there you know i think there's there's like a i got asked a question once a long time ago it's one of those like stimulating questions to, when you're thinking about your life and your career and your purpose like what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail you know, if you knew you were guaranteed to succeed, what would you do? And you can start to think about all these things. And you're like, wow. And what that's getting at is that we all have this fear of failing something. And that's in in some ways uh, holding us back from doing something, you know. So, what was your answer? <laughs> Gosh, I don't remember at the time. <laughs>
1: what would be your answer to that? That's a really good question. <laughs>
0: um What would I do if I knew... I I think it's a good question to ask yourself every couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For me, it's around... I don't have a really like one-line specific answer right now to pull out, but it's around, you know, I'm really passionate about um, influencing and holding these conversations, whether it's, you know, manifests in the podcast or events or in the work that I'm doing with community, whatever it is, I'm really passionate about, about influencing and changing people's perspectives on what's meaningful and important especially around looking after environment looking after community you know i think that we get so bogged down in our kind of day-to-day week-to-week lives that we can get um uh narrow focused and this is really why i'm so inspired by that kind of stepping back bigger picture overview effect you know what do we truly care about? What truly matters is it's not our paycheck. You know, it's, it's clean water, fresh air, living healthy, wholesome lives, connected to community, connected to each other. You know, so if I knew I couldn't fail, it would be like <laughs> some sort of role or some sort of um, uh, career where I can help broaden people's perspectives and help them find, you know, what the, the, the type of lives that they want to live that's healthy for community and our planet. <laughs> That's a very vague yeah, answer, but but you know it's 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 along those lines, and and you know in asking that question, it's like, well, why don't we do those things? What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And whatever the answer is, well, why don't you do that? Why don't we pursue that? You know, yeah. and it's a really interesting question to ask. Yeah, but like you other. said,
1: you know, there's a, there's a sense of reality behind it, and I, and I don't blame people. And I include myself in there, you know, and this is, um, I kind of fell organically into what I do today. Is it the best way for me to contribute to the world? Maybe not. I still take the planes to go wherever I go uh, on these expeditions. You know, is, there's, there's obviously like a downside to what I do as well. Is it the best contribution? This is one. Is it the best one? Probably not. Um, so I could... Include myself into the, the that basket of people who are not necessarily doing what they like. You said like the the, the ultimate mm. um, thing. In case <laughs> they couldn't, they wouldn't, they would never be uh, failing. Um, but for people who, who like keep into a more regular life, um, without any judgment. Uh, like when I say regular, it's like you know, typical, or I don't mm. know how to describe that because I don't want to sound judgmental. Because it's I'm not. I can really understand um, why people just get stuck into whatever they do, or or or, or keep staying in that golden cage, Um, because it's also quite overwhelming when you think about that. You take a step back and you look at the overview effect thing, and Mm. you go like, "It's like where do I start?" Yeah. Oh yeah,
0: you know, and you're, and it can be you know, all consuming, and that can be um, somewhat debilitating sometimes. Yeah, if you get, it's, it, it's like, actually, Whoa.
1: it could be actually the other way around. You go yeah. like, oh my god, I, I, I don't want to even think about it because it's demoralizing, demoralizing. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm not blaming people, or I'm not having any judgment on people who are not doing it, um, or not even trying because they're like completely overwhelmed by the issue. Um, and also there's a sense of reality you've got three kids a mortgage whatever and all of a sudden all, all of that becomes like um, very daunting and scary you know so you think of the guy uh, uh, you know someone who's got a regular job three kids a mortgage but then participates into the community does I don't know trains the kids at soccer on the weekend and whatever and then all of a sudden gets oh, why don't you do that and then all of a sudden if he has to do this whatever crazy dream mm. cannot do that anymore. Has to go and and pursue a a new you know career, putting his family at, at risk or you know in a in a more yeah tr- trickier situation. Has to sell the house to do what. You're like, oh, is it really is it really contrib- <laughs> contributing contributing yeah, yeah. in a way? You know, so that's that's why I'm like, oh, sometimes some people are like the family guys kind of people who actually contribute and are involved with the community just doing what they do and you know doing 9 to 5 and stuff it's actually not a bad thing necessarily at all oh, and, ab- and, absolutely and, 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 and this is maybe this may be actually a very nice way to contribute to the world and to the, to the community so that's why I don't
0: necessarily I think uh, no I think right, you know I think I mean? you're right I think I think you're right and I think we can get caught up in like the Instagram world of <laughs> of um yes wow this person's an explorer or they're yes, a, you exactly. know an athlete or whatever they'd yeah. get this really high profile lavish life whereas um I 100% agree with you and I guess what what I I was kind of getting at and what I would love is to I don't know play a role in yes. helping people's perspectives on living a more kind of um Purposeful and uh, yes, and, and and healthy lifestyle. And, that, and this could that, be
1: done at, lo- at a small scale. Totally, and and, and I, because I'm I'm a little bit um, personally. Um, mm. Uh, th- this is also the reason why like on the te- at the TED talk last l- couple of weeks ago I try to share my story in the most um, authentic way and, and uh, in, as possible in the sense that I'm not saying that I've got a special talent or anything because that's not the reality I am like a normal guy doing things that are a little bit out of the ordinary you know mm. but that happened very organically for me because I, I think this this society is very much uh, under pressure from the superhero kind of um, there's a superhero kind of um, culture mm. you know especially in our western, western country, countries with you know like super exposed m- mediatically very exposed people or people who who are influencers or got millions of followers and, and, and they completely uh, keep away from the public's eyes what us what has made them what they are today or what they were at the beginning of their career and stuff mm. like that. They're they only, they only communicating on their current status.
0: Or the detrimental impacts and of that lifestyle. You know, the, or the
1: detrimental impact of that lifestyle.
0: Yeah. Or, and then the thing is it
1: becomes all of a sudden and those people, go, your average, average people like me go, look at those guys, go, but how did they, how did they get there? And, and it doesn't actually show you a path. Mm. They just show you a status and you feel you're so remote and far from those people that you don't actually want to try because you're like, well, yeah, well, I'm not that guy. Mm. Because they're only, they're only giving you a, a very small fraction of the whole story and the picture on how they got there and what it took them and stuff like that. And if people were conscious of what happened, what what what, what, what goes behind the scenes, they would either think that it isn't actually... It is. It isn't actually a great contribution because of everything you're saying, all the 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 this, this, the, the negative side effects of whatever they've done, or it might, um, yeah. So it, it you kind of. Um, I think people need need to be able to relate, and today in this superhero kind of thing, we don't. We it's very hard to relate, and then actually, those people who are currently having this kind of superhero thing, they're not actually leading the way. Uh, or showing the way to people, they're showing them doing something, but they're not necessarily uh, inspiring in the sense that they will they will trigger um, actions or, mm. or people taking their lives in their own hands and doing stuff differently because 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 people don't know how they can get there. And I think this is why I'm I'm sometimes a lot more admirative of people who do great things in their community. Yeah. Um, locally, because they're rather than you know, yes, you can you can help from here in Australia, um, you can help uh, reducing starvation in Africa. But you've got also indigenous issues here and stuff. You know, let's start around the corner. Mm. Not that you shouldn't be, you know. What I mean, you shouldn't yeah, be stopping yeah. doing anything for Africa. I'm just saying that sometimes it's also about the small local actions that are under the radar that no one sees and i'm very admirative of those people probably as much as the guys who've got two million um, followers on instagram and go to (laughs) everest without oxygen and
0: you know what i mean like i know what you mean we actually need more we don't necessarily need more superheroes on instagram and big you know inspiring explorers that people like that can play a role but we actually need more just people in our community being mindful of buying local you know um trying to reduce their impact on the planet trying to raise healthy um engaged children in a in our community trying to volunteer and give back to their local communities people just kind of holding yeah. holding this the space for healthy communities they're actually the most integral people and that we I, need right? yeah
1: and i've seen like an, an adventure for the sake of adventure yeah it can can still happen but i think more and more this is being a little bit outdated, and I think there needs to be a, a deeper purpose to to what adventure should mean. Should be at the service of something, which is why I'm really proud to work with Under the pole. Is that they're putting a skill at the service of science. Mm. It's not just for the thrill of going deep and stuff. It's it's actually to work and help, being the arms and eyes of scientists, and and this is why I like to be involved so much with with those guys, mm. um, because everyone's got a, a true pure motivation of helping discover, protect, because ultimately whatever you discover um, helps protect or, or convince the decision makers to enforce or to put in policies that will protect the environment. That's why we do things. Now there's a lag between the moment we actually do an expedition. Then the scientists work on the data, which could take a couple of years. That's Mm. what's happening with the deep coral stuff. And then from there, you basically have data that you can make digestible and you can go and see the policymakers and say, that needs to change. This needs to be happening. Um, So there's a bit of a lag. But then the the ultimate purpose is for that. And and that's why I really like to be be working with those guys. But I've worked, for instance, a couple of years ago with um, a scientist called Emma Kemp um, on the Great Barrier Reef. And I was absolutely blown away by what she was uh, doing because she's working on the resilience of the reef on the Great Barrier Reef. And what she's, sh- what she's found is in the mangrove, so from Port Douglas, between Port Douglas and, and the reef, you've got, I don't know, three or four hours of, of, of boating. Mm. In the middle, you've got a couple of small islands Um, which have like um, mangroves and they basically get almost completely dry at low tide and, and there's a bit more water obviously at high tide. So the water at low tide becomes really, really hot. So half of the time it's actually super hot because of the roots of the mangrove. It's super acidic. So the water there is so aggressive for the corals and yet corals thrive. A couple of hours boating later like if you push through and you go past those islands and get onto the Great Barrier Reef after like you know the the coral bleaching episodes happen after a few days or a few Mm. weeks with like an extra degree or two degrees of of temperature in the water and all of a sudden corals can die but like a couple of kilometers down Mm. the road you've got those corals that are super resilient and anyway she's working on that and one of the things she's done on the, great, on the reef, on the, the, the Great Barrier Reef, was to um, anything that would be broken or bits and pieces of the reef when it dies, you know, sometimes it breaks because it's a little bit, it's not as, as, as strong. She would put that, put them on the nursery. So she's got like kind of uh, grids that are like metal grids that are kind of um, f- half of, fl- like in between two waters. And then she puts those bits there. The, cor- the coral keep growing, keep growing. And then she takes those and puts them back. But what she's done on top of the scientific work and this kind of practical work to replant, to save some of the bits and pieces and then replant as they're growing in the nursery. Mm. She's involved the local tour operators. So she's basically started with one and said, look, um, we need to, um, you need to help me with the reef. And I don't know, this guy, um, because she works in Sydney and she wants to have an eye on it. You know, at all times she cannot be all the time on the reef so she said can you help me there because you're going da- daily with tourists can you tell me how's the nursery going can you take a few photos can you replant or you know can you help me being you know my eyes and arms when I'm away in Sydney at the university Initial, so she started with one, but then she tried to roll that out with a couple more. And then initially, they no one wanted to talk about that because it was like, we shouldn't tell the tourists that the reef is mm. under threat. You know, it was kind of an omerta around it, like something where we shouldn't talk about. It, it was a taboo. <laughs> and now she's convinced, like, I don't know, seven or eight of the pro, of the, the charter boats that go daily to the reef the, the guides actually go, take photos, upload them back to the, and then they explain to the tourists what they're doing here on that reef, that there are nurseries, that if people wanna go and and, and and snorkel around them, they can see what's happening and why they're doing it and stuff. And then people have the feeling that those now tour operators are actually doing something good and, and taking part of saving that reef and not just bringing tourists with a big boat and then dropping them off and then you know bring them yeah, back yeah. on land. Those guys are partakers takers in the solution. So um, I've spent a few. Um, I've, I've done the documentary about Emma Kemp um, a few couple of years ago, and I came back and I was like so inspired. I'm like, why isn't she <laughs> like on a cover of a magazine? Yes. You know, because not only she's doing the science work, she's got great knowledge. She's doing stuff herself. She's got. She's a forward thinker, but also she's convincing the community, the tour operators, people who have an influence on how the reef is perceived and also can educate at in turn they can those guys can educate the people, the tourists who come on the reef, you know, from, from Australia and overseas and explain what's happening and how, you know, things that can be done to help and et cetera. And I'm like, this is exactly the type of people. Are. And yeah. those are not the superheroes, you know, those those are the, and she, I don't know if she's even has an. yeah, she has an Instagram account, but she, I don't know how many followers she's got, yeah, but yeah. certainly not millions. And I'm like, this is where the problem is in this society today is I those, you know, duck um, yeah Jigs gets <laughs> millions of followers, and and, yes. and, 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 and 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 someone like that has, you know, a limited reach in a way, you know, relatively to some of these other influences. So I really. That's why I'm, I like what I do because when I document these kind of stories, I feel like you know getting this story out there to more people. Um, because to me, those are the superheroes. But when, obviously, when you talk to those people, you don't feel like they're superheroes. They're yes. humble, and they you know they they. I'm sure if you'd call her and say do you want to do a podcast, she'd be like, "Yeah, great." Yeah, yeah. You know, because it gets the word out there and, and stuff like that. So, for me, this is what I, I find great about the job that I do today is that I, I get access to some of those stories and they're not necessarily the superheroes and i feel i'm really proud when i can put together some images about and telling telling their their stories
0: yeah well it's those people that are you know that that are doing what they do for a purpose bigger than themselves you know rather than ego driven or status driven exactly Yeah. yeah exactly Oh, Frank! Amazing. I, l- I love hearing your story. I love hearing all the work you're doing. Um, and I think it's it, you're such a great example, and you're so great at articulating, um, y- you know, this this kind of every everyday man approach. You know, like like we like we talked about, not some superhero or someone that was born into a lifestyle or someone that was you know gifted, born gifted with a photo, uh, camera in their hand. Like you've just you've just followed kind of your what's meaningful and interesting and um you know it's something that's kept you passionate and how that has just evolved and you've put in the work and how that's evolved into um where you are today i think it's just a great story and a great analogy for everyone i guess i'd just ask you like what would you say to someone who's listening who maybe maybe they're on their commute, listening to a podcast on their commute, on the way to their corporate job that either maybe they don't like or maybe they do like it, but they're just kind of like looking for something more or something else or something to be passionate about, you know, or looking for some sort of meaning in their lives. You know, what what would you say to them?
1: Um, I'd say you don't have to be radical. Um, And what I mean by that is that When I learned learned business, for instance, um, it was always to put... The only model I had was that, you know, I'd put my business skills to a big corporate company because those are the ones that would have interesting jobs that would pay the best and have more, you know, all this bullshit. (laughs) But you could be an accountant and work for Sea Shepherd or, for the lack of a better example, but like an NGO of, of your... Of your um, that means something to you, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could be an engineer and work on a project like, like the capsule we've worked on. We've got a couple of engineers working on that um, with us, you know. You've you've got so many ways to put your skill as a a skill that is that is um, required in every other company, you know. Like some some I would say some generic uh, careers. Um, you could put that at the service of something that's a bit more meaningful than what you're potentially doing today. If you don't think that's meaningful or that you you don't like the product that your company is doing or whatever, I think it's about starting to do whatever you know how to do but to the service of something that's meaningful to you. I know it sounds a bit, um, I don't want it to sound a bit fluffy, but in reality that's... that's I think that's the easiest way to feel useful. Mm. Uh, is to believe into, to, to believe in the company or the, the, the structure you're working for. You don't necessarily have to, to be ready you know, if you're like an engineer, all of a sudden you become a chef. Or <laughs> you know, it's you can if you've got the skills and you're happy to train again and do all of that, but you could there are some easier steps or easy way, ways to get to make that change happen. I wish someone had come to me. Well, I'll put it, I'll step back on a second. When I moved out of the corporate world, I was a bit scared not to find those people because I was going to be a photographer working on my own. And I was like, oh, I love being in the corporate world because I was surrounded by smarter people than I was. Mm-hmm. And that kind of kept me alive, you know, kept me stimulated. I was like, yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that stimulation. I didn't believe in the model and the system and everything, but I liked some of the people I was um, uh, surrounded with. When I stepped out of the corporate world, I thought, oh, how am I going to find those people? And then I'm on that boat with a couple of weeks later, a few weeks later, I'm on that boat with Under the Pole in, the, in, the Greenland, in Greenland. And on board, there's a doctor, there's an engineer, there are a couple of engineers there's you know so it's like everyone's got a role to play and and i'm like everyone's got like amazing skills they're all really bright people no one is here for the money because there was absolutely no money involved in this expedition <laughs> everyone is here for the purpose and being in this expedition, I just learned from everyone because you know everyone's got you know you've got like ten people on the boat you have to have one of everything you've got a mechanic and engineer and, mm. and uh, so you have like a mix of 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 great smart people who are there for the right to do the right thing and I was like oh great okay so i'm 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 meeting here some smart people and then when Under the pole grew one step one notch uh, higher the the preparing that next expedition we had even more people in in the organization and same like it was different skills and but everyone um so you'd have like an, an admin uh, an admin person and you'd have like a a media guy and you'd have like but everyone's here for the for the same for the same with the same idea in mind or the same purpose and it but it's like a company like any uh, any company and mm. i wish i wish um when i was a student i had my eyes opened on the fact that i could do like a follow normal path in terms of my studies but at the end of it just go to something that was meaningful to me that it was not just one path through the big corporate guys but there was a path through um other alternative ways of putting your skills um, in motion um, and that's something I really miss I'm, I am missed and I'm hoping that my message somewhat will be heard you know like, and that's something I'm really trying to convey I've had people walking to me engineers at a, at a talk I've done a, few, a couple of years ago called Adventure Tales this guy walks up to me he's like I'm an engineer I'm in my final year but uh, I've heard your story and I want to quit everything and mm. I'm like no mate don't quit people whatever they do you know like building innovative boat to clean the oceans or whatever it is they need people like you they need skilled people like engineers like you who yeah. will put their 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 um uh, skills and knowledge to the service of of their purpose so that's my my advice is start with what you know how to do and try to do it for something that you believe in and that could be your local ngo that could be something you know you could reach out to some to NGO community oriented stuff it could be your environmental um w- whatever or start your own little um, um venture or little, your little NGO to clean the beach in Barren Bay or whatever it is but you know there's not like a you don't have to completely change career you could yeah. do whatever you know how to do and, and do it for a greater pu- a better purpose
0: awesome I love it I love that message and that that that's something that I've actually experienced in my life as well um when I was a student at university, I was studying chemical engineering because I just fell into it because I was good at science and maths and went into engineering, as you do. Um, And I had, in the later parts of my studies, I had this experience of seeing and even volunteering for Engineers Without Borders Australia. And that was the first time that I was like, whoa, I don't have to just go and work at a... Like, I could actually... You don't have put to do mining, to uh, oil use, and gas exactly. or mining. You and can be an
1: engineer for a better purpose.
0: 100%. And then funnily enough, and then put yourself out there and follow that. Because funnily enough, um, I actually recently interviewed for the podcast. I'm now good friends with Danny Almagor who founded Engineers Without Borders. So, you put. it's funny how the, like 10 years later, you know. So, it's funny how the world works like that. You find that, you follow that and you keep putting yourself out there, keep knocking on that door and things kind of find you kind of find your way yeah
1: and I uh, and and like anything you know once you we often say like you never find you always find a job when you already have one you know when you are working for people come and find you because they know you're there and it's the same when you you step into like a, a little bit of a uh, an alternate kind of model or an alternate kind of um, environment in which you work like me today in the expedition adventure world kind of thing once you're in there then other people notice you from you know the the mm-hmm. second the second row or the third row. It's just like LinkedIn, you know. It's like yes. you, you get you step <laughs> into a, a different world and. And then other people come and find you, and then you get exposed to, or you get involved in another project, and all of a sudden it's just like any company when you you start somewhere, and then you get headhunted to go to that other to that next uh, next job or next company, and then you get headhunted again to go to that. It's the same when you you go into an NGO or some some um, some project like like you're describing. Someone else will notice you, or you might hear, hear about some organization you had never heard of because obviously they don 't get the media attention that they should get, and then all of a sudden you you're to that, into that next thing or you're going to be involved with those guys and that 's what I found is that organically it 's been growing because with the minute you step out it 's a bit of a leap of faith initially, but there 's another world behind the beyond the the, the the office the office walls you know like uh, you, you 've got smart people as well you 've got mm ways to do exciting stuff you get ways to grow as well you get ways to train yourself there's a lot of things that that um i didn't think existed outside of the corporate world that all of a sudden were were um were available to me Mm. so um and more so it, it is um um it is a bit of a leap of faith people people can can struggle with the idea but but again Use regret as the compass and then do that leap of faith. And the first step is the hardest one to take. Once you've done that, then, then you meet other people. That's, that's the other reality. And maybe I want to touch on, on that as well. Mm. Is that when I, when I left the corporate world, everyone was like, oh, I admire your courage and your bravery <laughs> and la, la, la. But then when you step out, you realize that. So I go to Under the pole for the first time in Greenland. And I'll tell a, a little story. There is that another poll too. So that expedition in Greenland on board an expedition ship should have been sponsored, right? And then the sponsor actually pulled out a few months before the expedition. So this couple, Emmanuel and Guillain, the things they've done, they sold everything they had wow. to make this expedition happen. They were a few months before, a few months, um, it was a few months prior to the expedition happening, and they called. They said to their whole team sorry guys, there's no money anymore. It'll have to be done on a on a voluntary bi- basis, 18 months expedition on a voluntary basis. Wow. It'll have to be a voluntary based uh, expedition. We've got no money. They've sold their house. They've sold their cat, They've sold everything. They had a two-year-old kid Ooh. that they were going to take on the, the expedition and they, and, they did, and they made this expedition hoping that on the back of it there'll be a book, media, um, uh, the movies, stuff like that will, which will create a bit of an income but also will will well well um help them to 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 get the funding for the next project mm. and it's exactly what happened but when I was leaving the corp- my corporate job, I was not taking a massive risk, but everyone admired me you know for that and stuff but then I would go on the expedition and I realized that those guys I've put everything on the line they've sold everything they've just put they went all in, and I was like oh wow, and then I met more people who had done these radical changes and then when you think you're like a unique kind of case, then you step into a world where you are surrounded by people who've taken radical steps or or, or not radical, um, bold Mm. actions to get to whatever they're doing. And And that becomes almost your reality. Then all of a sudden you're stepping into a world where most people around you have at one stage in their life taken bold actions and then, you, and then it becomes your new normal. You go like, okay, yeah, so they've done it. This guy's done it. This guy's <laughs> done it. But when you're on the other side, you know, you, you feel like, oh, you, you don't know much. You know, everyone kind of lives the same lifestyle as you. Uh, you know, like safe, good money, mm. the bonus, you know, nice holidays. And, you know, everyone likes that. And they're all, you know, all trapped in that. And you, the minute you step outside that's a new, a new reality that you're surrounded with people like that so when you do the first step it's a hard one but then once you're with other people like that you help each other you talk about it you get inspired by someone who's done something different and then you go like oh yeah actually, I, can, I could do that myself or mm. we could work together on that and, and and all of a sudden that becomes your new reality and, and, and I think that's why I think it's the hardest uh, to do that first step is because once you get to the other side you'll meet other people who've done same thing as you and then you feel comforted in the choice you've made you feel a lot you don't feel alone anymore you don't feel that brave as well it keeps you in check you know you're (laughs) humble because you realize some people have taken way more risks than you have and and um and i think this is this is very stimulating to to step to the for me it was stimulating to step to the other side and realize what people had sacrificed to be where where or, or what they had done to be where they were um, you know, just yep. I just thought, okay, good. A lot of smart people and a lot of ballsy personality and a lot of you know bold characters and and that, that that's very um,
0: um, it's feeding me. Yeah, uh, but, but and 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 those people, those really bold characters, people that have taken those giant steps, they probably started a long time ago with that smaller first step. Yes. You know? Yes. And we just don't see that. We yeah, but <laughs> exactly. until you take yours. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a great message. And um, you know, it's awesome the work that you're doing as well. So, um I, I'm I'm mindful of I could sit here and chat to you all day, but I'm mindful that you've probably got a <laughs> life to live as well. So, um, Frank, thanks heaps for um, you know, taking the time to sit down and record such a you know intimate and kind of deep conversation these kind of conversations are really important I think for people to have and also thank you for the work you're doing you know on Under the Pole and you know oh, that's, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm,
1: yeah. I'm not the you, can, you should think yeah, <laughs> yeah you should think Under the Pole no, yeah. I'm just well, taking the photos of those guys <laughs> yeah well no your <laughs> no, photos it, are amazing thank you very well. much thanks for having me and I hope the, somewhat the message lands in a few heads mm. that you don't have to be the best and just believe a little bit in yourself and trust the process. Uh, if you do the right things, and I don't want to sound too uh, corny, but <laughs> if you do the right things, normally things should 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 work out. It's just um, it's a bit of a leap of faith, but I think yeah, uh, I think it's it's this it's it's very rare that you have no turning back in whatever you do. So yeah, once you come and- conscious of that. You could do anything, almost.
0: And when you put yourself out there, when you're aligned, people do want to help you get to where you want to go. Exactly, as well. and that's the other thing people not to, to underestimate.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Whether it's your family, uh, I've had a great support from my my wife, and she's allowed me to do all of that. But then also your friends, etc. And indeed, you're right. If you if you want to pursue something, you're not on your own. You'll find people on the way, and you'll have people around you supporting you, especially if it's for a great cause. Because very often you're you are what People wish they would do themselves, mm. and therefore they're, they're really keen to help you because they're they kind of living the dream through you. Um, yeah. And that's that's something that you should not uh, underestimate your right to point it out because because um, it it could feel like a lonely uh, lonely adventure to kind of I don't know take a take a, a, a radical change or a big a big, uh, big big step change in uh, in someone's li- in one's life. But it is not really, really. it is um, you're not on your own. So it's uh, a good good point. Mm. Thank you for having
0: me. Oh, mate. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for being part of it. Awesome. That was good.